This week, uh, we have two special guests. Uh, one is Hiram Anderson from Endgame. He's the technical director for data science uh, at Endgame. That's going to be a, a whole ton of fun. I don't think we've ever had a, a data scientist on the show. So brace yourselves for that. Uh, after that, Keith Hoodlett joins us from the InfoSec Mentor Project. Uh, Keith and uh, Jimmy Vo are uh, restarting, rekindling uh, that, that project uh, and have some exciting news to share with us and all of you. In the security news, news the nose news, I, I suppose we should talk about uh, the CIA uh, uh, leaking data, uh, WikiLeaks report on that, as well as an IoT security alliance. Um, 185,000 Wi-Fi cameras on the web with insecure admin panels is always fun to talk about because that like happens all the time. Uh, why email is safer in Office 365? Um, let's see what else. Uh, and, and just so much more. So stay tuned for Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. you buy the average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light black hills information security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network Synapsis is the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at onapsis.com. The game automates the hunt for both known and never before seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame, automate the hunt. Howdy! Welcome to the show! I'd like to introduce you, our host! He's a man that says, Yar what you eat. But you know what? He must have eaten a sexy beast this morning. Paul Asadorio. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Security Weekly. <laughs> I'm your host, Paul Asadorio, and as Larry so eloquently uh, gave my introduction, that was a good one, Larry. I liked it. <laughs> We've got a fantastic show for you this evening. Of course, Larry's here in studio. Larry, welcome. Hell yeah. <coughs> the show. Episode excellent. 504 after the, the course, apparently. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Which good stuff. Good. Before I forget, I do have, when we get to announcements, I have one announcement that I'd like to do sort of towards the end, and that's fine. It's really quick. Absolutely. On the lines via Skype, Mr. Carlos Perez is there with us. He's the man dressed in black, apparently. <laughs> On the line. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm still uh, still fighting to actually need to buy a new camera. So more than likely, I'll I'll be checking uh, one of those nice Logitech cameras so I can fix uh, <laughs> this, or just buy a smart TV. <laughs> yeah, or and then yeah. we can. Hey, uh, hey, hey! Wait, wait, wait! Get you on camera. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Wait okay. for it. Wait for it. That's what she yeah. said. Yeah. Mr. For Jeff, some reason, <laughs> my Mac re- refuses to recognize the FaceTime camera. In Skype, every other program works fine, but Skype, uh uh-uh. It's because it's Microsoft's fault. Uh, Jeff Mann is here with us uh, on the lines via Skype, actually, not actually here. Sometimes Jeff is here, and it's nice to have Mm -hmm. him here. But tonight we'll have to settle for Skype. (laughs) Excuse me, for Skype. (laughs) Welcome, Jeff. How's it going, Paul? It's going fantastic. Hello, everyone. Uh, Jack Daniels here with us. (laughs) You got a really big microphone, Jack. 
I, that's yeah. Do you yes. say that? You yes, say I that, do. You say that to all the girls, Paul. <laughs> Apparently so. I, I am here in beautiful Chicago, where it is not warm and sunny like it is at my place down on the beach down south. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, it's it's you are always bright and sunny. Well, yeah, sometimes right. bright and sunny. Yeah. Okay, maybe not. Anyway, the 10th anniversary edition of Source Boston is being held this April, including training sessions on April 24th through the 25th, and conference talks on the 26th through the 27th, featuring awesome speakers from the security community. Events take place at the Courtyard Marriott downtown in Boston. Security Weekly listeners get a $100 discount on training or conference using the code SECURITYWEEKLY. SourceConference.com has all the information. You can go there and register. We're also excited to be attending and covering the 13th annual Secure World Boston Conference on March 22nd and 23rd at the Heinz Convention Center. Secure World brings together New England cybersecurity community for high-quality training, collaboration, and networking. This year's theme is Surviving the Siege, Medieval Lessons in Modern Security. Don't miss presentations from Larry Wilson, Esmond Kane, Sandra Backick, and many more. Earn 12 to 16 CPE credits by attending. You, Security Week listeners, get $100 off that conference as well. See, it pays to listen to Security Weekly. SecureWorldExpo.com is the place to go for that. Larry, you said you also had an mm. announcement. Yes. Um, besides Orlando coming up on April seventh or April 8th, right before the Sans Orlando conference. And somewhat after the other conference that we'll have an announcement about, InfoSec World. <laughs> yes. There's a lot going on in Orlando in the security world. Yes, huh? absolutely. So, yeah, besides, uh, besides Orlando, April 8th, I will be speaking mm. on Woo-hoo. something totally new and different, and it's... I'm going to try something different. Just what, what the hell? What are you speaking on, Larry? So, I'm going to tell a story. That's and good. this was what we Jason about Blanchard. a man named yeah. Jed. Yeah. And this was what we came, we were talking about a little bit after the show that I never told you the story about Jack and Diane. No, <laughs> about two-factor two authentication <laughs> and the lack thereof. How oh. could get somebody on? I was talking about that in email today. Yeah, we're, we're, Larry and I are going to do a segment on the Arlo uh, cameras because Larry and I both mm-hmm. have them now. Uh, so look for that coming up. Uh, maybe sometime this month. Actually, it may go into April before we can actually do that segment. Yep. But that's one of my gripes is no two-factor. Yep. Yep. So quite honestly, I don't remember what the title is or what the actual write-up that I gave them was. Yeah. Because I didn't – I wrote it right on the website because it was like, hey, we need this now. And I, I'm like, all right, great. I got 10 minutes. <laughs> so effectively what happened, the, the beginning of the story goes, is that I had an email address that I'd never used anywhere. And all of a sudden it started getting email one day. Interesting. And it got signed up for stuff. Juicy stuff. Juicy stuff, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, well, don't give it away. And that's it. That's all that's, I'm going to tell you. It got, si- it got signed up for juicy stuff. Well, awesome. Well, here to talk about some juicy stuff. I'm very excited about our interview today. Yes. Hiram Anderson is the technical director for data science at Endgame. Hiram, it's very nice to meet you, and it's very nice to have you uh, on the show this evening for Paul Security Weekly. Uh, my pleasure to be here, and great to be here with great guests, uh, uh, great Smart folks in the industry, Paul, Larry, Carlos, Jeff, Jack. I am a relative newcomer compared to all of you to InfoSec. We get we get that a lot. Yeah, how did I bet? So <laughs> Hiram, I, and typically I guess how they get their start in information security. But let's back up. Like, what what was your uh, career and interest before uh, kind of delving into information security? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I studied formally in undergrad and master's and PhD in electrical engineering and with a focus in machine learning. So um, I came out of my uh, master's program and PhD programs um, ready to tackle interesting problems um, related to security, but not InfoSec. So, you know, my my PhD was about um, trying to train machines when the data you feed it at at training time is different than it it gets to see at test time. And that's a really interesting problem. So after, after school, um, you know, I worked for some time at MIT Lincoln laboratory. Um, that was great. You know, that was sort of situational awareness in, you know, the real world and, uh, spent some time at Sandia national laboratories, also Mm -hmm. a great experience in security. And uh, then, then I sort of stole away to to Mandiant, then then later FireEye, and now Endgame. So here I am. 
So, um, Hiram, I want to ask you to, to kind of set the stage for, for today's discussion, um, given your background. What, we hear these terms, and now they're being used so often in the marketing of companies in security. What's the, the difference or define for us uh, big data, machine learning, and AI? Yeah, a great question. And I, I'd agree with you, Paul, that um, anytime something is new, sometimes getting overhyped. And I think we, I'm a machine learning guy. I'm, I'm excited about machine learning. But I do think it, we can do a disservice to uh, what we can bring to the table as data scientists when we sort of oversell or overhype. So let's see, the question, what is data science? What is machine learning? What is AI? So um, at a very macroscopic level, data science and big, big data is just about you know, looking at data Big data comes in, you know, you've probably heard um, this, uh, this notion that big data is big because of its variety or volume or velocity, right? Um, in marketing, especially in security, we hear a lot about artificial intelligence, about machine learning, and, and there's a difference. So I think when people hear artificial intelligence, um, you know, this conjures up images of I don't know, Hell 9000. Yeah, like I want to close the pod, the pod, the pod bay door, and it, it yeah. won't let me. Yeah. Or worse, like Terminator, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I think ex machina, and I think you're the yeah. guy that got locked in the basement. Right. Oh, <laughs> yep. oh, oh. Or her. Yeah. Her. Yep. Mm. Sorry, continue, Harb. <laughs> so, so let's, let's just define... What is artificial intelligence? When you think about artificial intelligence, um, you should think about autonomous agents that behave and reason and interact with the world. So, you know, like the AI in a computer game is an agent because it is making decisions, it's interacting with uh, its environment, albeit a virtual environment. That's different than, uh, that's sort of a superset, I should say, of machine learning which focuses really on um, training models to predict and generalize from data. It's sort of a narrower scope. Mm-hmm. So in information security, when people say they use AI, I, I think that's probably mostly ina- inaccurate, except for a, a few cases. Hmm. What most people do is, is machine learning and, and data science. So, Hiram, uh, I, I think one of the one of the elephants in the room is that when we as security professionals hear the term machine learning, a lot of it is being kind of like from a lens of, hey, we can replace the human. And I think that's where some of the confusion comes with artificial intelligence, right? Like we can analyze the data that you security professionals have been analyzing by hand for so long, and we can just go ahead and replace you. And I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with that. I think a lot of us also see the value in that in certain circumstances. So to what extent are we using machine learning, and does it replace uh, what we're doing as humans analyzing the data? You know, we would love to be able to replace um, humans in this experts who are expensive, and uh, there are a few of them, but that's just not going to happen in the near future. Um, I I like to think about what we bring to the table as supplementing and enhancing um, what the human analyst can bring. So machine learning is going to always rely on the security specialist and expert in order to curate a data set, in order to define how to use the, how how to unleash the machine learning on, on the data and on the problems and that, that's just never going to go away. Uh, furthermore, you know, there's um, a whole host of, you know, even when one releases a machine learning model um, into the wild, it's information security specialists who are coaching it and telling it where it's wrong, what it got right. That's just never going to go away. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to help to scale, um, you know, as, as the volume of data is becoming more and more uh, difficult to deal with. Hopefully, we'll be able to scale some of those uh, human expert uh, efforts with use of machine learning. 
When we do get to the point where we uh, can start replacing people, I have a list of people I'd like you to replace. But to your point, uh, the value uh, when there are so few people who know, you know, we, Michael's not on to get into the whole skill shortage thing, but, uh, you know, what I see is I'm not intimidated by this. I think the idea of uh, intelligent and experienced people uh, wasting less time uh, on tedium and letting uh, machine learning systems present us with challenges that need human context is like the first step in this path. Is, is that a pipe dream or is that really where you're trying to go? By you know using our time better and letting the machines do what they do better than we do, and then in using our human resources better at where it takes uh, the subtlety of the human mind to be kind to the insanity that is humanity. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Jack, and I, th- I think that's exactly right. I'd, I'd agree with that. That our first step is to um, um, help and assist the human, and it's going to be a while before the, those kind of um, expert tasks are replaced full scale. Um, along those lines, Hiram, <clears throat> I've gotten into uh, somewhat debates with people about, so we're at this point in security where I feel like like <clears throat> machine learning is like a, a, a thing that lots of people are getting excited about. And so do data scientists become security professionals or do security professionals become data scientists? Like which end of the pendulum do you see it swinging or is it somewhere in between? And how do you see that playing out? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I see it both ways. So my path and that of many of my colleagues was, you know, first machine learning. Um, so I, I guess I'll back up. I'll say that both approaches are, are totally valid and bring sort of different strengths to, t- to the table. But people who start in InfoSec know way more about security than I do. Um, and the people who start in machine learning, you know, they, they usually have a really solid math basis and they can they, they can dive into the weeds and the detail of the of the de- of the, the models and the math, and both of those are important um, as one is trying to like unleash a system into the wild that you can trust um, that both that has both sort of the expert curation uh, and 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 blessing and and effort provided by the expert security expert, and also sort of the nuances of the of the data science. So yeah, it, it definitely happens both ways. Uh, for example, at Endgame, I'd say that, gosh, I think all of our InfoSec data scientists were um, data scientists first, um, but we have an awful lot of people without the title data science. Um, they're you know InfoSec people first, but they're they're really really good uh, at understanding and talking about and reasoning about um, data science models. So those are both extremely valuable to us. So, and again, kind of a, my next question along those lines are, I find that large organizations, large financial, large healthcare, we're talking hundreds of thousands of just user, employees of the organization, I'm finding more and more that they're taking advantage of um, machine learning. And I, I think largely that stems from like they have their own data scientists on premise, like in the insurance industry, for example, and they're like, oh, like we can use you for some security stuff, right? And they're building, <laughs> they're building their own software and their own models. And the question I always have for them is, like, how much of that can you sustain yourself? And I know you work for a vendor, Hireman, and have in your past couple of roles, but I'm like, in like, how much of that do you want to rely on other vendors for as well? And isn't it better in some circumstances to let Vendors like Endgame and others like do that on the endpoint rather than trying to build stuff yourselves. Like, what advice do you have for organizations, uh, the large organizations? Yeah. Um, well, the first advice is, I guess, for those for those organizations who have data scientists on hand, um, information security is a different beast entirely mm-hmm. than what you get when you're like working with images or, or uh, text to speech or whatever. Yay. We you are know. a unique snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are, we are a special snowflake. So here's the deal. Um, in information security, there are bad guys who are actively trying to get around your model. 
So it sets up this adversarial condition that most um, data scientists, um, you know, until recently, aren't dealing with quite as much. So there's this, uh, you know, game theoretic cat and mouse uh, problem that is constantly evolving. So if if I'm a if I'm building a face recognition system at, at Facebook, um, you know, my face is not trying to morph to combat the, the detection problem and, and evade it. But that is certainly the case in information security. And that creates a whole new uh, set of problems mm. that you can't just take sort of the tools and blindly apply them. It, it takes some, you know, as I mentioned before, some expertise, some nuance to get this going. If I, if I may push back then, what I'm hearing you say is a little bit... Uh, uh, contradictory perhaps to your earlier statement where uh, InfoSec people can become data scientists and vice versa. Uh, if I might suggest, uh, you know, being an InfoSec person, sometimes it's more of a, a mindset, it's a lifestyle, it's a personality. In other words, it's not necessarily something you can learn, uh, in my opinion. Others might weigh in, but uh, I, I would think then it would be easier to make an infosec professional into a data scientist rather than vice versa. But that's my bias. What do you think? I, I will uh, I will take you up there, Jeff. And I, I would say you're right in, in the sense that um, you know there's a, a a learning curve in so many ways for information security, not only in sort of these adversarial settings that I described, but also you know vocabulary that can be daunting. Um, that same, that same sort of daunting um, task exists for an infosec person trying to get into machine learning. There's a vocabulary. Right. You know, I, I, I've been rejected a number of times uh, uh, submitting papers that are mathy and machine learning -y to security conferences. It's like oil and water, right? There's right. um, the, the readers don't say it, but implicit is too much math. Won't read, right? <laughs> TLDR: too much math. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. T TLDR: because maths. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> math is hard. Yes. So you know, it brings up a great point, though. Like we in the industry, so you know, what does data science do for security? Like, I think there's a couple things. Number one, it just adds to this. We need to be a big tent in security and have different kinds of minds and different kinds of perspectives looking at this problem. So if nothing else, data science brings that. And number two, I really do believe that data science can, um, can help in, um, you know, scaling the human and solving automation problems in, in a really good way and generalizing. Um, and we need to do a better job at making this oil and water kind of mix a little bit better. Cause the, if you draw that Venn diagram of data science and infosec the intersection is still, um, you know, still still materializing and getting bigger, but uh, it's it's not as mature as either of the either of the sort of circles that form it. There, there's your next talk at a security conference: data science and you, my first maths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the one of the things that you're going to notice with the community is that the community is kind of split in two sides. You're going to find more of the IT regulation, blue side, and then you're going to find the red side, which is more of the uh, penetration testing, hacking kind of stuff. And you're going to see that, uh, at least on the blue side, probably you'll get a bit more uh, receptive crowd than on the red side. Typically, we've seen it in conferences like DEF CON. We've seen it in, in uh, several other cons that when you submit a paper, and if it is not an attack <laughs> technique, if it is, if you provide defense, they say no, not not mm -hmm. sexy enough. It has to be something sexy. Most conferences, yeah, now that there are so many of them. They're constantly looking for stuff that is sexy, stuff that gets crowds in, and it has to be attack. I, I think uh, what we're saying is math isn't sexy. I think that's really the <laughs> no. I, I think it's the crowd. No, I, no, no. I think it's more of the Ma crowd. No, you, math, you're right. Carlos. Math is dead sexy. It just has to be presented at a conference. Correctly. Well, that's right. We, no. You've got to. Remember. Do you know why math is so attractive? It's because there are a lot of figures. You got that? <laughs> wow. Wow. Love it. That's right. a new one. Love it. Sweet. I'm, I'm awesome. using that on my nine-year-old when I get home. Uh, I, Hiram, <laughs> Hiram, I want to I go, go back to what you were saying uh, earlier about... Hey, Paul. Uh, oh, yeah, Jack, yep. Jack had a comment, I believe. Okay. I was, so, Jack, I was going to say that 
One of the interesting splits, though, is that the the infosec industry really is built out of early security, which came out of World War II, which is built on what, Jeff? Uh, crypto, which is built on math. And yet uh, we have a lot of folks with an aversion to math, which is kind of an interesting uh, turning our back on where we came from. But, you know, math is difficult. I think there's a challenge with a lot of us that come from the, the network side, particularly uh, who are self-educated college dropouts or, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest, college drunk out in my case. Um, you know, although I, I, you know, I enjoyed math. I, I can count and stuff. Um, but, you know, there is a challenge. And, and math is, um, I think you have to have a deeper understanding of math than most people get, even in an undergraduate degree, mm. to, to see how, you know, to see the, uh, forgive the, the term, see the beauty of mathematics or the uh, the excitement in mathematics because at a, at a surface level, even on an undergraduate degree level, math is just one of those things you have to do um, until you get to a point where it's it's part of what you do. Um, I, don't, yeah. I don't want to project too yeah. much, Hiram, but that, uh, from, from my overeducated friends, I've, I've seen that. And uh, from my own failed attempts at education, I've seen that. <clears throat> I agree with you, Jack. Uh, I don't want to undervalue the value of math and mathematicians. I've worked with many mathematicians, especially in a previous life, brilliant people. But again, uh, brilliant people that when confronted with the, the unique challenges or the, the different way of viewing the world that, that you know, call it the hacker mentality, uh, really struggled. Um, so maybe, maybe what the best scenario is, is, uh, uh, you know, more of partnership. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to be great at both, but, but learn to speak each other's language so that you, so you can work side by side, both the data scientists and the infosec professional. Oh no! Do we have and, 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 <laughs> and as you mentioned, it is also the presentation. For example, let's take a Bloodhound, something that the old now dead uh, ATD group from Verus came up with. Uh, Bloodhound did a mm -hmm. bunch of analysis of all of the connections, presented that to you uh, in a diagram in pre-pictures, and did all of the math. And when you take the presentation. Half of the presentation is them talking about the algorithms that they had to choose, how they tuned those algorithms, mm -hmm. uh, what type of uh, how how they fed the data and uh, to to tune them, uh, uh, garbage in, garbage out, good data in, good data out, and they discuss all of the trials and errors and how they got there. I I think it is the presentation plays a heavy uh, point there. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, I would say just trick a bit. On your call for papers, say uh, I, I've had friends that all of a sudden say, "Okay, uh, I'm going to talk about Active Directory, the sexy attack." They get in and they talk about sexy attacks, and then they add the defense side, or they add uh, the, the login side, and the sexy that they put in the CFP was um, only the first ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hiram, let me ask you this as an example of that. Uh, some people I talk with are. When we talk about the authentication problem, we talk about passwords, two-factor authentication. As security professionals, we tend to really point out the limitations of both of these systems. Now, you mentioned before the you know the Facebook algorithm that can look at your face and how you know it's tough to look at that as anything other than uh, fingerprinting your face, for lack of a better term. But what if we were to tackle the problem, and I think this is a great intersection between data science and security. If we were to look at the problem and say, well, I can understand people's behavior, how they hold their phone, how they swipe their phone, and how they use the technology, and use that as a signature using machine learning in the background, and from that develop their level of access or uh, ascertain their level of access based on their behaviors. There's a lot of data science that goes into that. We as security professionals are very skeptical. So what do you think of that problem and, and how does it uh, help kind of describe this interaction between security and data science? Great question. Yeah, Paul. so the user behavior, uh, this, this is a problem that's um, not entirely new, but not really, uh, I should caveat, I, I'm not an expert in this, but uh, as I've played with that problem just a little bit, I found it to be extremely difficult. Um, 
to uniquely identify user. And the reason is, um, again, we're sort of, um, you know, we exhibit mass behaviors and the things that we do, the, the sites that we go to. Um, we, uh, we're certainly our own little snowflakes, as was mentioned previously, but anytime that you have um, a problem in which you're trying to uniquely identify your somebody who is a dynamic being who uh, changes their behavior over time, that can be prone to false positives and false negatives like, like any problem. But um, I like the idea and the concepts. Um, I think that people are working on that, actually. But I, I, I would love to actually know more about the state and maturity of that. Because in my sort of naive understanding of that and my own toying with that problem, it's sort of kind of really immature still. It's, so where can we... really Hold on, Paul. It's really, really not a new problem i think perhaps maybe the application is new um but user behavior is is something yeah, that yeah. May, or, may or may not have been used in a previous lifetime many 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 years ago <laughs> yeah so ueba at, mm. for anomaly detection is a thing that mm. um with data science is still growing and developing a lot, lot of a lot of vendors are marketing this um yeah the problem with this and i apologize i'm going to do math with you right now so the problem with UBA is this: um, if you look at, you know, if you look at your web browsing traffic, all of us together, and, and everybody in our organizations, and you try to, you know, draw some distribution of what normal looks like, Porn. the picture you have in your mind should not be a bell curve. It should be this really weird-shaped donut where all behavior lives on the tails of the distribution. So that makes it really hard to figure out. Uh, anomalous because everything is anomalous. You know, everything is is unique, and that that's one reason that UBA is, is difficult. And and this version of machine learning that's called unsupervised machine learning, so sort of mm. constituting what normal is and finding deviations from it, is um, has has been researched and is going on and getting better. But but again, um, is I would say is slightly more prone to false positives than than uh, sort of supervised machine learning methods. Not, not, to, it, not to shoot down your, it, not it, to shoot down the measurement, but I think the the bell curve might actually exist for the web surfing stuff. In that the bell curve, that that peak of that curve would probably be porn. Yeah, but uh, I I, I, I understand the metaphor that you were going with. And, but but and, think about and, it. In, in but high, to follow in, the metaphor, Larry, I think what he's saying is he can't or, or machine learning cannot distinguish your porn watching habits from Paul's porn watching habits. Oh no, they could. Else. They could. They're very distinct. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what Hiram's talking about is the yeah. user is so dynamic that I like factors that the machine learning algorithms aren't looking at. I have a conversation with someone, mm -hmm. and the next day, randomly throughout my day, I'm like, oh, I got to go to that website and check that out. Yeah. And, and since most of us have like this ADD kind of syndrome, yep. <laughs> if not ADD or ADHD itself, mm -hmm. we're kind of like, oh, I need to go there and do that. And I, that I tell you right now, three minutes ago, I'm like, shit, I need a battery disconnect for my Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> like, seriously, right. I was literally exactly. looking at Amazon for battery disconnects. But now, Hiram, <laughs> and I, I think we're, and correct me if I'm wrong, where we're more successful in information security with machine learning is not analyzing user behavior so much as we are analyzing the behavior of malicious programs. Is that is that correct? Well, I, that's one area. And, and again, you know, I am not an expert in UVA, and there's a uh, hundred vendors listening to me right now who are um, uh, up in arms about my claims here. But this is just from my limited experience. But I, I will say that as I have approached problems, these sort of detecting the thing is easier than detecting the, the who. Yeah, I, I, I'd say that's, that's a, a fair assessment. So, how, so what, what, malicious programs mm -hmm. and... Um, the behavior of programs who are a lot more deterministic than a human. Even if the behavior of programs is artificial in intelligence, I mean, as, as a bot to a certain extent, that's easier yeah. than determining a, a user or person, human being's behavior, right? I mean, that's a broad sweeping statement, but I'll go with it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where, where are the... Where are the it doesn't fit with the data science, Paul. It's broad... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but now, so where are the wins in information security, Hiram, in, in your experience that uh, where machine learning can help us the most in information security? 
Yeah, it's anywhere that you can have a massive labeled data set. So malware is a good one, right? Um, a lot of work on sort of um, you know phishing or spoofing uh, domain names. That's a good one uh-huh. where, where people have gone through and have massive data sets. Uh, a model can sort of learn in a way that is hard for a human to summarize what constitutes malicious versus benign. And furthermore, can can learn to generalize, uh, not as well as a human, but um, you know, approaching that capability. So, yeah, malware is a great example if you wanted to talk about something in detail um, about how that works. But uh, yeah, those, it, those again are still improving. I think that I think the domain one was one that's hit close to home really recently. Um, given that you talk about domain reputation and what it's done over time and and some of those types of things. And, and the other one that you mentioned, you know, that domain reputation tied with DNS, uh, potentially if you think about, you know, the way that we're doing a lot of command and control for either, you know, uh, nation state type stuff that DNS is seeing a lot more increase in some of that, uh, the command and control stuff. And, you know, one of the things that, that we've been seeing on a recent, recent test is we're using DNS as command and control and DNS queries are fairly static. They've got a flat line and evenly distributed. And all of a sudden this one domain takes off like gangbusters, you know, 20,000 DNS requests in a day, and then the next day it's 500,000, and 480,000 of them are to this domain that is unusual. Or just f- why 480,000 to this one domain? Right. So. Yeah, and, and, and the same when you apply it, let's say, to malware. When you're looking at malware, you're seeing a bunch of binaries. One of the things that you're seeing is they're not encrypted. Most of the time they're not compressed. Most of the time they do not create a remote thread they do not do uh they do not set another thread to start uh, a process they do not expand their own memory uh and then and then mark that memory right so there are certain behaviors that it is in the data of the process that you can actually trigger on and the thing is that the information of those PE files and libraries in memory is as he mentioned they're labeled they have fields that you can actually check and correlate and feed into the uh, algorithm. Uh, along those lines, Hiram, are, are there things that you can uh, tell, like tips for security professionals to be able to identify situations where machine learning would be extremely valuable? You know, Larry and Carlos just mentioned some examples. Mm-hmm. Are there like tips where we can better utilize machine learning to help us accomplish our goals? Um, yeah, uh, uh- a lot of problems where you find yourself looking at lots of data and trying to discover a pattern yourself, that should be an immediate red flag that says, oh my goodness, I should, um, I should investigate or ask somebody about just a simple method to start sort of this uh, machine, learning, machine learning model forming. So, um, you know, security logs, right? When people are looking at that and a human can say, you know, these, these are bad events, these are good events, as soon as you can start to label that set and bootstrap yourself into a labeled data set, that is a prime um, field ripe for machine, machine learning to take, uh, take hold. Now, there's no guarantee about how successful you'll be with the machine right, learning, right? right? That's, a, that's a separate thing, but, but at least it's a place you can start asking um, of the data how successful you can be. <clears throat> Um, so with the, the, the work you're doing at, uh, at Endgame, um, you know, kind of where is that focused and what are some examples of models that you've come up with where that have been really successful in uh, detecting bad, right? Paul, I just loved how you asked that question and threw in the word model. You talk like a data scientist already. Appreciate it. <laughs> Look at that. And, 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 osmosis. I, and, and I am waiting, waiting for this answer because I'm... I'm Math hates me, and yeah. I hate math. But I've grown to love it over the years, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm, I want to hear this. This is like, this is fascinating. So, sorry. Yeah. Hara. So, I'll first say, uh, InGame's been pretty open about the things it's been working on. So you can find a lot of this in published papers and whatnot. We we do make an effort to contribute to the community in peer reviewed papers, and we post to archive, which is a place you can go to, um, you know, download papers for free. 
Um, and we've also presented some of this work, the, the data science and InfoSec work at, for example, um, you know, some of the more accepting math InfoSec conferences. We, we did this at uh, B-Sides. I presented B-Sides Las Vegas and uh, DEF CON uh, last year. So um, a couple of things that are, that are really cool. So we, uh, in um, a couple months ago, we released to VirusTotal our machine learning-based malware detection engine called malware score Ooh. and we're really proud of that um you know that it was a huge validating step for us <clears throat> to release to virus total um this is a very classic machine learning problem tons of malware tons of benign ware and we label them carefully and the most important job probably is getting those labels right and um if there's any reason our model is better and worse than our competitors you know, that's a big reason is, is how careful we are with the, that labeling. And then we, you know, from the from each of these files, you know, we'll extract uh, important salient features from the Windows PE file. Uh, that's in consultation with some of our really sm smart InfoSec folks here who help guide us in, you know, the data science team mm. in, in getting those important features right. And we build a model and now it's released. It's, it's tiny and it's fast and it's, it's highly potent. So we, we like that. Um, another really interesting thing that we've uh, worked on, um, I, I mentioned actually in passing, we, um, uh, we, we've also done some work on detecting um, domain generation algorithms. So can you look at a, the domain generated by a malware's DGA? Can you just look at a domain and tell me if it came from a DGA or not, right? So that's a cool problem. So can I, can I tell by just the outgoing DNS requests whether there's a piece of malware trying to call home? Um, that also, um, we've used uh, both supervised and some unsupervised learning for that. The unsupervised learning, I think, is really interesting. In, in this model, it, it's, it's using some really sophisticated and modern machine learning approaches where... Um, we actually red team, we, we play this game. There's a red team and a blue team model competing against each other. One of them's job is to, de to detect DGAs, and the other one's job is to produce ever-increasing, ever-more-difficult domain names to confuse the blue team. So they play this match over and over and over, and uh, in the process... They both kind of get better at their jobs. The, the blue team model gets really good at telling DGA from not DGA. And the red team, as a, you know, a byproduct, we've created a machine learning-based domain generation algorithm that produces domain names that, um, that, that might fool you and me as, if we look at it. So that's pretty cool. Does it ask you if you want to play a game when you use them? That'd be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like old school Zork from the command line. Would you like to play a game, north, south, east, or west? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That sounds just like purple teaming when you have blue and red working together and making each other better instead of fighting each other. Yeah, this is a machine learned purple team scenario. Exactly. Is the machine contributing to the exercise of the exchange, or is it at that point a manual process? amongst team amongst the teams so this in in the scenario i just i described um this will never take the place of human red and blue teaming but it is a way to generate at a massive scale a lot of data and it is wholly automated you unleash red team and blue team and they fight against each other uh, this is called a um, generative adversarial network so a, a network of two adversaries playing this game against each other um Really kind of cool. And, and now, have uh, is this in practice inside the product or some kind of thing that people can use? Or yeah, this uh, th these are really early efforts. We uh, I think Endgame is one of the vendors that are championing the, its use in information security. It's being used elsewhere, um, but for far different purposes. It's um, really what what happens now is uh, when you play this red versus blue team. The byproduct are a bunch of domain names that could fool a classifier. So we can use these if we're really careful and carefully augment our data set and train our production model. 
So we're not actually using um, either the red or the blue model anywhere in production, but the data produced from that can be used to supplement and harden uh, other machine learning models, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah. See, math is cool. (laughs) (laughs) Little mushroom cloud just came right up over the top of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Are there... um, behaviors and then subsequent like data sets that you can tag inside of malware uh Hiram that in your analysis were like wow that was like that was like really like easy to like pinpoint this type of behavior because I feel like in a lot of us security professionals know that when we look at malware we're like wow whoever wrote that was not very smart at being able to deceive a, a blue team for example so there are specific models that you have that you look at you're like wow that, that was really kind of too easy um, like the model is so successful that you said, oh, that, that was an easy win. Yeah. That, that, that probably, um, doesn't happen as much as I'd like, like it to, um, because of the scale of the data and the, the variety of actors we're dealing with. But what I think does happen sometimes is that when, you know, as successful as we are and, you know, we have high standards in inf- information security, um, we want to catch all the things and never false positive on anything, right? But there's always this inherent trade-off between the things you can catch and the things you false positive on, especially in data science. And that that is a um, something we we're always trying to get better at um, across the industry. I'm not I'm not talking end game specifically, but as data scientists, we are uh, sensitive to this trade-off and false positive and false negative rate. However, as we're Building these models, and one turns out to be really successful, um, often when you go back and you look and you ask the model, why why are you making this decision? And you show it to an InfoSec guy, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, that's because he's, you know, he's clearly DLL injecting here, right? I mean, the, the model has discovered something we've known all along. I see. So that. those, th- that's, um, that's kind of a, a feel-good moment when... The, the computer has learned all on its own something that a human has um, mm. has learned over a long time, right? In a community. Well, that's really cool. Other questions from the rest yeah. of the computer? Go ahead, Jeff. I just uh, very fascinating. Um, I wonder if in in the machine learning, especially in the in the purple, you know, teaming we were just talking about. Uh, you know whether there's um, uh, a susceptibility to uh, trying to figure out how to describe it to you know to become successful because it, it learns how to be successful not from an inherent hey it's really doing its job but because it's it's learning based on I guess the 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 pattern or the behavior of the of the of the uh, uh, of the other side. That's a machine doing the same thing. So, uh, am I making sense? You, know, it, you are. Are there limitations? Are, okay. Uh, yeah. It's hard for me to there, get the question out, but there definitely are, and and uh, we're relying on some cool findings here. Um, so obviously, if you play a game red versus blue, and red starts to beat this blue, mm-hmm. or blue starts to detect this red, the question is, you know, can I somehow generalize that to other? Other scenarios, right? It's not clear. Yeah, well, that I guess I what I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying is, it gets really good at beating the particular opponent, but it doesn't necessarily right. learn if you if you change the opponent. It's mm-hmm. kind of starting from scratch. Yeah, it, it, it uh, the question is kind of generalized to, to other opponents, and yes. um, what we have found is really interesting, and this has been validated actually first by other um, academic researchers, and then secondly by us in the specific InfoSec domain of detecting DGAs. But we found that what's really clever is um, because because machine learning models all tend to share some common characteristics, and I'm going to be mathy again. Go for it. it, Yes. All all it means is that it turns out that most machine, machine learning models are locally linear. So hmm. um, near near a certain query point, they all kind of look the same. 
And because of that, if I attack and defeat one model, there's a good chance that that same attack will work against a second model. Not perfectly, but you know, there's a non, there's a there's a non-zero probability. There's a high probability that. But it's but it's not working for the intent the way you intended. It's working because of the limitation of, of yeah, machine learning. It, it uh it is learning to uh, find an attack vector that works across a large number of different machine learning model attacks. If that makes sense, so it might not work every time, but it's pretty successful. I mean, I might be way oversimplifying it, but it, you know, in in to use an education analogy where everybody complains about standardized testing, and, and it becomes a very common problem that teachers tend to teach to the test. So mm-hmm. kids are wildly <clears throat> successful passing the tests because they've been taught to pass the test, which isn't necessarily yeah. an indicator of whether they're learning or not. But they go to get a job and they can't perform, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. That's fair. Okay. Hiram, um, when our listeners are uh, evaluating vendor products and regardless of the space and security, we all see the term behavioral analysis. And I think it was John Strand and I learned to really question like what that means. <laughs> uh-huh. Like what questions would you ask or what things can you arm with us to uh, you know, kind of dig into what a vendor means by behavioral analysis? Oh, man, I could go into this a lot, not just about behavior, but about everybody who is talking about um, next-gen AV or machine learning. There, there's a, a laundry list of questions that you should ask. And, that, you know, we, we try to ask ourselves, not just at in-game, but, you know, my colleagues at even competing companies, we, we need to do better about being honest and not letting the sort of marketing buzz and hype take over. Mm. For behavior, um, one, one thing that I always... So I think when you and I think about behavior, some vendors can get by calling something behavior that's not sort of at the same level. So behavior to them might just mean I'm looking for a certain sequence of API calls that constitutes a behavior. I don't know. You tell me, is that behavior? I would say that's a rule and that is not actually learning any kind of behavior. So, um, to me, a behavior is learning a repeated set of patterns over time and kind of generalizing that into a, a model about how this thing or this per- person behaves. And that's a hard problem. So I, I would ask questions to try to get to the bottom of that. Another question you have to ask, whether it be behavior or not, um, behavior especially in my experience, again, and, and I, I don't, I've only spent um, research time on this, not product time. Behavior is prone to false positives um, and false alarms that can uh, really wear down a user if he's sorting through these things. For example, uh, you know, I, I remember looking at trying to find um, beaconers in data. And you know what? Time again, and again, the beaconer we found was your toolbar. Right? Because he's, <laughs> he's sitting there beaconing out. And is that something the user wants to see? I mean, that, that we're finding a behavior, but is that a useful behavior for, for the end user? I don't, I don't think it is. So um, th- those are hard problems. Uh, asking about the false positive rate, about the false positive versus true positive rate trade-off, especially with behavior, I think vendors really have a, a challenge to appropriately measure their own progress on, on that, um, you know, can can you with certainty say that I am detecting a certain percent of these kind of malicious behaviors at a low false positive rate? Anyway, and, I, and, and, I could go on and, and on and about that. <clears throat> yeah, and, and there is where I see a, a real value on machine learning, um, because given let's take an example of the AV industry. You're getting a bunch of uh, false positives uh, due to the rules. There's nothing you can do. Now, in the case of machine learning, since the system is constantly learning and improving itself via labeled data, as soon as you start getting a bunch of false positives, the user can actually go into a console and actually provide feedback saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And at the same time, the algorithm will then take that data Feed, uh, feed it into the module and be able to then come out with a better uh, process 
to determine if it is something that's malicious or not. It can it, it can get that additional input uh, to then improve upon its decision cycle. Right, but and that requires that, that requires burn-in time, which may, or may not be um, a good thing. But but, but isn't I, that by I, I like definition that not machine learning because you're you're providing it the input manually? Uh, well, all machine learning requires input. It requires a label set. What you're actually doing is you're helping it along and improving that data set for it to then learn and improve on, on itself. So I, I would step back just one second and say um, there are two sort of broad approaches to tackle this problem. One is, Carlos, just like you said, that's I develop a labeled set of what constitutes uh, normal behavior and, and bad behavior, and that's labeled. The other is anomaly detection where I just... I have this burn-in time where I try to learn on the fly what constitutes normal behavior, and then anything that departs from that, I alert the user. And that's when things like the, the, the web toolbar becomes difficult. But yeah, in both cases, um, having user feedback is extremely important to have if the user has the patience to, to sift through a, a dozen of those a day or whatever. Yeah, and the problem is that we're still dealing with the issue that many organizations out there actually want an appliance, a blinky box that does everything for them. Mm -hmm. We're still fighting the fight of getting people trained, uh, having uh, not only trained on the basics, but hey, you bought this blinky box for $100,000. Are you spending any uh, of that money also on training on how to use the blinky box? Nope. No, the blinky box will do it for us. That's what sales said. Um, and as you mentioned, the burn-in time is what actually we get friction with most organizations because they really do not want to uh, to invest in the meatware. Uh, Hiram, it is uh, now time in our program where we ask you the five questions. Ooh, and Paul, I got two bonus questions for him. I, I can go before or after. Okay. Well, if they're bonus, they got to be at the end. That's right. <clears throat> All right. All right, All right Hiram, are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? I, I think I am. Three words to describe yourself. Tall, skinny, and um, driven. Now that's a data set. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? <laughs> uh, calculus. If you tweet, if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Um, geez, these are hard questions. Um, five kids and how I survived. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Uh, never played. I just always like to go first in things. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead. Uh, fictional or otherwise. Oh, geez. Um, you know, I've got... I, I'm going to say Jimmy Stewart. I think that's about the right age for my dad. Let's see, for my mom. Huh. I, I, I like I like how Hiram is like a math guy, and he's like, it has to be the right age. And he calculated that in his head, like, what the right age would be. I think that's awesome. Yep. And now, the, no, and, now, Hiram, and, and this Audrey is... Hepper. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn. All right. Yeah, there you I go. was going to say, Hiram, this is 2017. It could be two dads. It could be two moms. That's it. That's they don't. It. They made December relationships. I mean, there's there's math there. So, Jeff, bonus <laughs> bonus questions, Jeff. Bonus question uh, number one: uh, What is the significance of August 29th, 1997? Hiram. I'm He's trying to think. I, I don't know. He's, I was uh, He's Googling I was living overseas at the time. I have no idea. Okay. Anybody else want to fill in and answer the question? To the Google. <laughs> to the yeah. Google. It is the day that Skynet became self-aware. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. And reaching back even further, let's go another 30 years back in science fiction lore, who or what is Norman? As in, Norman, please compute. Maybe Jack will know this one. <laughs> I don't know this one either. Uh, 
Jack Norman, said, Lifeline. Jack's Jack? brain's hurt for this one because I should, but I, it's not coming to me. But uh, it's from I don't Star Trek, the I Mud episode, where it's a planet full of androids and they're mostly women. Right, right. And the one that's in charge is Norman. Artificial intelligence trivia. Wow, Jeff, that was wow. um. That was amazing, Jeff. <laughs> that was amazing. Damn, I'm, I'm kind of impressed, Jeff. Deep, that was obscure something. I am nothing if something if not something not obscure. It, obscure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hiram, <laughs> thank you very much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Great time. 